Volume Two, Part Fifteen of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Fifteen. Then Histaeus brought a great force of Ionians and Aeolians against Thessos. While he was besieging Thessos, a message came that the Phoenicians were putting out to sea from Miletus to attack the rest of Ionia. When he learned this, he left Thessos unsacked, and hastened instead with all his army to Lesbos. From there, since his army suffered from hunger, he crossed over to reap from Artenius the corn there and the Mesian corn of the Caicos plain. Now it chanced that in the region was Harpagus, a Persian, with no small force under him, when Histiaeus landed, Harpagus met him in battle, and took Histiaeus himself alive, and killed most of his army. Histiaeus was taken prisoner in this way. The Greeks fought with the Persians at Melene in the country of Artenaeus. The armies fought for a long time, until the Persian cavalry charged and fell upon the Greeks. So this was the accomplishment of the cavalry. When the Greeks were routed, Histiaeus, supposing that the king would not put him to death for his present transgression, did what showed he loved his life too well. He was overtaken in his flight by a Persian, and when he was caught and about to be stabbed, he cried out in the Persian language, and revealed himself to be Histiaeus the Miletian. Now if he had been taken prisoner and brought to King Darius, he would have suffered no harm, to my thinking, and the king would have forgiven his guilt. But as it was, when Histiaeus was brought to Sardis, both because of what he had done, and for fear that he might escape, and again win power at the court, Artaphrenes, governor of Sardis, and Harpagus, who had captured him, impaled his body on the spot, and sent his head embalmed to King Darius at Susa. When Darius learned of this, he blamed those who had done it, because they had not brought Histiaeus before him alive, and he commanded that the head should be washed and buried with due ceremony, as of a man who had done great good to Darius himself and to Persia. Thus it fared with Histiaeus. The Persian fleet wintered at Miletus, and, putting out to sea in the next year, easily subdued the islands that lie off the mainland, Chios and Lesbos and Tenedos. Whenever they took an island, the foreigners would net the people. This is the matter of their doing it. The men link hands and make a line reaching from the northern sea to the southern, and then advance over the whole island, hunting the people down. They also captured the Ionian cities of the mainland in the same way, but not by netting the people, for that was not possible. Then the Persian generals were not false to the threats they had made against the Ionians when they were encamped opposite them. When they had gained mastery over the cities, they chose out the most handsome boys and castrated them, making them eunuchs instead of men, and they carried the fairest maidens away to the king. They did all this, and they burnt the cities with their temples. Thus three times had the Ionians been enslaved, first by the Lydians, and now twice in a row by the Persians. Then the fleet departed from Ionia, and captured everything which lies to the left of one sailing up the Hellespont. The right side had been subdued by the Persians themselves from the mainland. These are the regions of Europe that belong to the Hellespont, the Chersonese, in which there are many cities, Perinthus, and the forts that lie towards Thrace, and Celembria in Byzantium. The Byzantines and the Chalcedonians beyond them did not even wait for the attacks of the Phoenicians, but left their land and fled away into the Euxine, and there settled in the city of Mesembria. The Phoenicians burnt the aforementioned places, and turned against Proconesus and Artes. After giving these also to the flames, they sailed back to the Chersonese to finish off the remaining cities, 
as many they had not destroyed at their former landing. But they did not sail against Sisychus at all. The Sisycenes had already made themselves the king's subjects before the Phoenician expedition, by an agreement with the governor at Dascalium, Oberus, son of Megabasis. The Phoenicians subdued all the cities in the Chersones except Cardia. Miltiades, son of Simon, son of Stesagoras, was tyrant there. Miltiades, son of Sipilus, had gained the rule earlier in the following manner. The Thracian Dolonsi held possession of this Chersones. They were crushed in war by the Absinthians, so they sent their kings to Delphi to inquire about the war. The Pythia answered that they should bring to their land as founder the first man who offered them hospitality after they left the sacred precinct. But as the Delancey passed through Phocis and Boeotia, going along the sacred way, no one invited them, so they turned towards Athens. At that time in Athens Pisistratus held all power, but Miltiades, son of Sipsilus, also had great influence. His household was rich enough to maintain a four-horse chariot, and he traced his earliest descent to Achus and Aegina, though his later ancestry was Athenian. Phileus, son of Ajax, was the first of that house to be an Athenian. Miltiades was sitting on his porch when he saw the Delonxi go by with their foreign clothing and spears, so he called out to them, and when they came over he invited them in for lodging and hospitality. They accepted, and after he entertained them, they revealed the whole story of the oracle to him, and asked him to obey the god. He was persuaded as soon as he heard their speech, for he was tired of Pisistratus's rule, and wanted to be away from it. He immediately set out for Delphi to ask the oracle if he should do what the Delonxi asked of him. The Pythia also bade him do so. Then Miltiades, son of Sipsilus, previously an Olympic victor in the four-horse chariot, recruited any Athenian who wanted to take part in the expedition, sailed off with the Delonci, and took possession of their land. Those who brought him appointed him tyrant. His first act was to wall off the isthmus of the Chersones from the city of Cardia across to Pacte, so that the Absinians would not be able to harm them by invading their land. The isthmus is thirty-six stadia across, and to the south of the isthmus the Chersones is four hundred and twenty stadia in length. After Miltiades had pushed away the Absinians by walling off the neck of the Chersones, he made war first on the people of Lampsacus, but the Lampsaxenes laid an ambush and took him prisoner. However, Miltiades stood high in the opinion of Croesus the Lydian, and when Croesus heard what had happened, he sent to the Lampsaxenes and commanded them to release Miltiades. If they did not do so, he threatened to cut them down like a pine tree. The Lampsacenes went astray in their counsels as to what the utterance meant which Croesus had threatened them with, saying he would devastate them like a pine tree, until at last one of the elders understood and said what it was. The pine is the only tree that once cut down never sends out any shoots. It is utterly destroyed. So out of fear of Croesus, the Lampsacenes released Miltiades and let him go. So he escaped by the intervention of Croesus, but he later died childless and left his rule and possessions to Stesagoras, the son of his half-brother Simon. Since his death, the people of the Cherosenes offer sacrifices to him as their founder in the customary manner, instituting a contest of horse-races and gymnastics. No one from Lampascus is allowed to compete. But in the war against the Lampsacenes, Stesagoras too met his end and died childless. He was struck on the head with an axe in the town hall by a man who pretended to be a deserter, but in truth was an enemy and a man of violence. Stesagoras met his end in this way. The sons of Pisistratus sent Miltiades, 
son of Simon and brother of the dead Stesagoras, in a trireme to the Chersonese to take control of the country. They had already treated him well at Athens, feigning that they had not been accessory to the death of Simon his father, which I will relate in another place. Reaching the Chersonese, Miltiades kept himself within his house, professing thus to honour the memory of his brother Stesagoras. When the people of the Chersonese learned this, their ruling men gathered together from the cities on all sides, and came together in a group to show fellow-feeling with his mourning. But he put them in bonds. So Miltiades made himself master of the Chersonese. There he maintained a guard of five hundred men, and married Hegesippil, the daughter of Aloris, king of Thrace. But not long after this Miltiades, son of Simon, had come to the Chersonese, greater difficulties than the present afflictions overtook him. He had been driven from the country three years before this by the Scythians. The nomadic Scythians, provoked by Darius, gathered themselves together and rode as far as the Chersonese. Miltiades did not await their attack and fled from the Chersonese, till the Scythians departed and the Delancey brought him back again. All this happened three years before the matters that now engaged him. But now, learning that the Phoenicians were in Tenedos, he sailed away to Athens with five triremes loaded with the possessions that he had nearby. He set out from Cardia and crossed the Black Bay, and as he was sailing along the Chersonese, the Phoenicians fell upon him with their ships. Miltiades himself escaped with four of his ships to Imbros, but the fifth was pursued and overtaken by the Phoenicians. It happened that the captain of this ship was Metiochus, the eldest son of Miltiades by another wife, not the daughter of Aurelus the Thracian. The Phoenicians took this man captive with his ship, and when they heard that he was Miltiades's son, they brought him up to the king, thinking that this would be a very favourable service, because Miltiades had declared his opinion among the Ionians, that they should obey the Scythians in their demand to break the bridge of boats, and sail away to their homes. But when the Phoenicians brought Miltiades's son Metiochus before him, Darius did him no harm, but much good, giving him a house and possessions and a Persian wife, who bore him children who were reckoned as Persians. Miltiades made his way from Imbros to Athens. In this year the Persians caused no further trouble for the Ionians, and at this same time certain things happened which greatly benefited the Ionians. Artaphrenus, governor of Sardis, summoned ambassadors from the cities and compelled the Ionians to make agreements among themselves that they would abide by the law and not rob and plunder each other. He compelled them to do this, and he measured their lands by parasangs, which is the Persian name for a distance of thirty stadia, and he ordered that each people should, according to this measurement, pay a tribute, which has remained fixed, as asserted by Artifrenes, ever since that time, up to this day. The sum appointed was about the same as that which they had rendered before. This, then, kept them peaceable. But at the beginning of spring the other generals were deposed by the king from their offices, and Mardonius, son of Gobrius, a man young in years and recently married to Darius's daughter, Artazostra, came down to the coast at the head of a very great army and fleet. When Mardonius reached Cilicia at the head of his army, he himself embarked on shipboard and sailed with the rest of his ships, while other captains led the land army to the Hellespont. When Mardonius arrived in Ionia, in his voyage along the coast of Asia, he did a thing which I here set down for the wonder of those Greeks, who will not believe Otanes to have declared his opinion among the seven, that democracy was best for Persia. Mardonius deposed all the Ionian tyrants, and set up democracies in their cities. He did this, and hurried to the Hellespont. 
when a great multitude of ships and a great army were assembled, the Persians crossed the Hellespont on their shipboard, and marched through Europe, with Eritrea and Athens as their goal. This was the stated end of their expedition, but they intended to subdue as many of the Greek cities as they could. Their fleet subdued the Thracians, who did not so much as lift up their hands against it. Their land army added the Macedonians to the slaves that they had already, for the nations nearer to them than Macedonia had been made subject to the Persians before this. Crossing over from Thrasos, they travelled near the land as far as Acanthus, and putting out from there they tried to rand Athos. But a great and irresistible north wind fell upon them as they sailed past, and dealt very roughly with them, driving many of their ships upon Athos. It is said that about three hundred ships were lost, and more than twenty thousand men. Since the coasts of Athos abound in wild beasts, some men were carried off by beasts and so perished. Others were dashed against the rocks. Those who could not swim perished because of that, and still others by the cold. Thus it fared with the fleet, for as Mardonius and his land army, while they were encamped in Macedonia, the Brigi of Thrace attacked them by night and killed many of them, wounding Mardonius himself. But not even these could escape being enslaved by the Persians. Mardonius did not depart from those lands before he had subjugated them. After conquering them, he led his army away homewards, since the Brigi had dealt a heavy blow to his army, and Athos an even heavier blow to his fleet. This expedition, after an inglorious adventure, returned back to Asia. In the next year after this, Darius first sent a message bidding the Thracians, who were falsely reported by their neighbours to be planning rebellion, to destroy their walls and bring their ships to Abdera. Since they had been besieged by Histiaeus of Miletus and had great revenues, the Thracians had used their wealth to build ships of war, and surround themselves with stronger walls. Their revenue came from the mainland from the mines. Their revenue came from the mainland and from the mines. About eighty talents on average came in from the gold mines of the Dug Forest, and less from the mines of Thrasos itself, yet so much that the Thasians, paying no tax on their crops, drew a yearly revenue from the mainland and the mines of two hundred talents on average, and three hundred when the revenue was greatest. I myself have seen these mines. By far the most marvellous were those that were founded by the Phoenicians, who with Thessos colonized this land, which is now called, after that Phoenician, Thessos. These Phoenician mines are between the place called Enira and Conira in Thessos, opposite Samothrace. They are in a great hill that has been dug up in the searching." so much for that. The Thacians at the king's command destroyed their walls and brought all their ships to Abdera. Then Darius attempted to learn whether the Greeks intended to wage war against him or to surrender themselves. He sent heralds this way and that through Hellas, bidding them demand a gift of earth and water for the king. He dispatched some to Hellas, and sent others to his own tributary cities of the coast, commanding that ships of war and transports for horses be built." So the city set about these preparations. The heralds who went to Hellas received what the king's proclamation demanded from many of those dwelling on the mainland, and from all the islanders to whom they came with the demand. Among the islanders who gave earth and water to Darius were the Aeginetans. The Athenians immediately came down upon them for doing this, for they supposed the Aeginetans to have given the gift out of enmity for Athens, so they might join with the Persians in attacking the Athenians. Gladly laying hold of this pretext, they went to Sparta, and there accused the Argentinians of acting to betray Hellas. Regarding this accusation, Cleomenes, son of Anaxandrides, king of Sparta, crossed over to Aegina, 
intending to arrest the most culpable of its people. But when he attempted to make the arrest, the Aginitans opposed him, especially Crius, son of Polycritus, who told him he would not take away any Aginetan with impunity, for he had no authority from the Spartans for what he was doing. Instead he had been bribed by the Athenians, otherwise he would have come to make the arrest with the other king. He said this because of a letter from Demaratus. Driven from Aegina, Cleomenes asked Crius his name, and when Crius told him what it was, Cleomenes said to him, Now is the time to put bronze on your horns, Mr. Ram, for great calamity will confront you. All this time Demaratus, son of Ariston, remained at Sparta, and spread evil reports of Cleomenes. This Demaratus was also king of Sparta, but of the inferior house, not indeed inferior in any other regard, for they have a common ancestor, but the house of Eurysthenes has in some sort the greater honour by right of primogenitor. The Lacedaemonians say, but no poet agrees, that it was Aristodemes, son of Aristochemus, son of Cleodus, son of Hylas, not his sons, who led them to the land which they now possess. After no long time Aristodemus's wife, whose name was Argia, bore him offspring, of Autusian, son of Tisimenes, son of Thersander, son of Polynices. She bore him twins. Aristodemus lived to see his children, then died of a sickness. The Lacedaemonians of that day planned to follow their custom and make the eldest of the children king. But the children were identical in all respects, so the Lacedaemonians did not know which to choose, when they could not judge between them, or perhaps even before this, they asked his mother. She said she knew no better than the Lacedaemonians which was the elder. She knew perfectly well, but she said this because she desired that by some means both might be made kings. The Lacedaemonians were at a loss, so they sent to Delphi to inquire how they should deal with the matter. The priestess bade them make both children kings, but give greater honour to the elder. When the priestess gave this response, the Lacedaemonians knew no better than before how to discover the elder child, and a man of Messenia, whose name was Penates, gave them advice. He advised them to watch the mother and see which of the children she washed and fed before the other. If she was seen to do this always in the same order, they would then have all that they sought and desired to discover. But if she changed her practice haphazardly, then it would be manifest to the Lacedaemonians that she knew no more than they did, and they must have recourse to some other means. Then the Spartans did as the Messenian advised. As they watched the mother of Aristodemus's children, they found her always preferring the elder when she fed and washed them, since she did not know why she was being watched. So they took the child that was preferred by its mother and brought it up at public expense as the firstborn, and they called it Eurysthenes, and the other Procles. They say that when these two brothers grew to manhood, they feuded with each other as long as they lived, and their descendants continued to do likewise. End of Volume 2, Part 15